0: Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and look at your word. And for all those that are going to hear this, that they'll be blessed. We ask you to bless this time, anoint it, and guide us in your son's name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 43, starting at verse 13. And these are the measurements of the altar after the cubits. The the cubit is a cubit and a handbreadth. Even the bottom shall be a cubit and the breadth the cubic, and the border thereof, by the edge thereof, round about, shall be a span, and this shall be the higher place of the altar. And from the bottom upon the ground, even to the lower settle shall be two cubits, and the breadth one cubit, and the lesser settle, even to the greater settle shall be four cubits, and a breadth one cubit. So the altar shall be four cubits, and from the altar upward shall be four horns, and the altar shall be 12 cubits long, and and twelve broad square in the four squares thereof, and the settle shall be fourteen inches long and fourteen broad, and four squares thereof, and the border shall you make a half a cubit, and the bottom thereof shall be a cubit about, and his stairs shall look toward the east. So we're looking at uh, the bronze altar that was being talked about for the new tabernacle, and it says very much like reading way back in Exodus when I was talking about the tabernacle's dimensions and everything, and it very much sounds like the same thing, only quite a bit bigger. And it says, these are the measurements of the altar after the cubits. The cubit is a cubit and a handbread. So this one is changing the size of the cubit to, most people use the 18-inch cubit, the distance between the average elbow to fingertip. And so this this one's a redefined, Cubit for this thing and it says the bottom shall be the breadth of a cubit and the border of it shall be a span so he has a base that's basically a 18 by 18 well the 24 by 24 in this case because a cubit plus the hand breadth that he's talking about so he's got a base of about 24 square and It goes and it says the bottom there on the ground shall be the lower cubic and it shall be two cubits and a breadth uh, of one cubic, from the lesser side to the greater side. So he's describing this table. It's going to end up being four cubits by their two foot cubit. So it's going to be the brazen altar where they're going to offer the sacrifices. And you know this is kind of an interesting thing because it seems to be very clear that there's going to be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom, even though Jesus is reigning and he's fulfilled the sacrifices. And there's certain sacrifices that make sense. Now there's one sacrifice in this list that I don't understand when we get to the offerings. Uh, and we'll get to that when we get there. But uh, and that's why many people, when we get to these offerings, many people will say that this was the Solomon's temple that was seen, but there, lots of it doesn't fit about Solomon's temple. So I don't, I think it's still talking about the Millennial Kingdom's temple. Uh, let's see, where to leave off? So the altar should be four cubits, and from the altar upward shall be four horns. So there's four horns on all the sides on each on each corner of the altar. And we see these horns at various times when people were going to be slain and they would run to the altar, they'd run to the tabernacle, uh, the temple, and they'd lay hands of the horns. It was supposed to be a clemency, a, a plea for clemency and, and demand a, a trial. And usually that's what they got. A couple of times the kings just drug them out because they knew they were guilty and wasn't gonna didn't waste their time. But these horns were on the side, and I don't know what these horns look like. they have some kind of protruding horns. Uh, we've seen pictures of them, all kinds of, you know, some people put shofar type horns on them, ram's horns, other people just put a little upward pointing horn, and who knows what they are? Because it never really tells us, it just says horns. And the altar shall be 12 cubits long, which is 24 uh, feet long, and 12 broad, 24 feet, and in four squares, so they're gonna separate squares on that big table. That's a pretty big size altar. 24 feet by 24 feet is a pretty good size altar. But when you look at how many people are going to offer sacrifices on it, it's probably not that big an uh, altar. I don't know how many uh, goats and lambs and and oxen would fit on a 24 by 24 foot uh, barbecue but (laughs) probably, probably enough but not not to get everybody on there at one time it's going to be a good size altar back in those days to be able to worship god you had to go to the temple and offer these sacrifices and you figure there were thousands of people every day going to the temple killing animals the, the blood and even the stink of the place had to have been horrendous. Uh Cortez when he came to the to Central America described in a journal what he saw with the with the Aztecs worshipping their gods and the blood flowing down the pyramid temple that they had and and in that case it was human sacrifices which made it even worse to him and he described the stench and you know which drove him into wiped out the people because of it, you know, because they wouldn't accept Christ. And he went there to tell them about Christ and they just got, he called it righteous indignation when he killed them because he saw all the blood flowing down the, you know, flowing down. And I don't imagine that Jerusalem was any less bloodshed than that. We're told in uh, Josephus that on one particular Passover that the Kidron Valley flowed red in the blood of the sacrifices of the Passover lambs because he said they'd, they'd swelled up to about a million people and those people all needed, every family have had to have a lamb. That's a lot of lambs dying for that many people. And the, the blood would flow and you know, they drained drain the blood out. And and so we look at this and say, is this altar, this altar sounds really big, but it probably isn't really that big when you start piling and heaping the, all the sacrifices on it for thousands of people. And it says uh, in verse 17, and the settle shall be 14 inches, or excuse me, 14 cubits long and 14 broad and four squares thereof. And the bottom thereof shall be a cubit about, and his stairs shall look toward the east. And there are stairs that go up because this is up high, and the priest has to be able to get up there to put the offerings on. You know as part of part of this is we want to remember that these offerings that they made were also part of their food they ate from the priest ate from these these uh, offerings and we talk about the Thanksgiving offering where they would be given half of the half of half of it and the people would take half of it and God got different pieces of it and they would take it home and and have a party basically and they had either 48 to 72 hours to eat all of that, depending on what the reason was for their offering. And they would end up having basically a great big roasted, barbecued, with uh, with all their friends to eat their Thanksgiving offering. Uh, the only one that was ever burnt completely was the burnt offering. And that was offered as, as just a sign of dedication to God. And the only thing they didn't get burnt on that was the the pelt which was given to the priest, so that they could tan it or sell it or whatever they wanted to do, but that was part of their payment for that particular offering. And we're going to get into some of these offerings and kinda of, kinda of look back into Leviticus a little bit. Alright, verse eighteen. And he said to me, Son of man, thus saith the Lord God, these are the ordinances of the altar in the day that when they shall make it, the offer to offer burnt offerings thereupon, to sprinkle blood thereupon, and you shall give to, to the priest, the Levites, this, that be of the seed of Zadok, which approach me to minister unto me, says the Lord God, a young bullock for a sin offering. And you shall take the blood thereof and put it on the four horns on it and on the four corners to, of the settle. And upon the border around about, the, you shall be, and it shall become about thus you shall cleanse and purge it. And you shall take the bullock also of, a, of the sin offering, and he shall burn it in the appointed place and hour without the sanctuary. All right, so we look at this, and it says, Son of man, these are the ordinances in the day that you shall make the burnt offerings thereupon to sprinkle the blood thereon. And we go back to Leviticus 1 talks about the burnt offerings. They were an offering of dedication and to my, you know, basically saying, God, I dedicate myself to you, and here is my s- symbol. Instead of me getting up on the altar and being burnt, you know, being totally dedicated, I'm dedicating this offering. And in Leviticus 1, we see that the priest would skin it and put the, uh, put the animal on, as in, that would be totally burnt up as a burnt offering. No, no, no fur, no hair, just the, just the meat and the bones. And that belonged to God. And it says, when that burnt offering is done, you're going to take and sprinkle the blood of that offering upon the altar. And then it says, thus shall you give to the priests of the Levites, and they shall be of the son of Zadok. Zadok is the grandson of Phinehas, who was the second high priest after Aaron. So the high priest line seems to be going through Zadok rather than all of Phineas's children, and you can find this information in uh, First Chronicles chapter six, which is a huge. First Chronicles is a wonderful book to start. The first ten or twelve chapters is a genealogy <laughs> of just about anybody and everybody, the the kings, individuals, tribes, the priests, and they go from all the way from Abraham. Many times, it's one of those fun ones to read if you like watch looking at names. <laughs> If people don't like looking at names, it's one of the hardest sections—one of the harder sections to read. But I like people to be aware of where they're at, so that when they read these names, if they want to know where they fall in the families, you go back to First Chronicles 1 through 10 and find their name in there, and you'll find who their family is and how they're related. And it's a wonderful book for finding those kind of things out. Uh, not much—not much fun to trudge through for reading. <laughs> But Zadok is the line that the high priests are going through the ones that offering, and it says that the seed of Zadok which approached to me unto me to minister unto me, for the which says the Lord a young bullock for a sin offering. So when they come to them, they need to offer a sin offering, and this has been true all the way through when the when the priests were ministering, they always had to offer a sin offering for themselves, and uh, before they even did their did their offerings and these when we talk start talking about sin offerings and stuff this is why many people will say this is either Solomon's temple or possibly the temple that was built during the tribulation period to the for the Jews to worship the third the third temple which goes into the millennial kingdom and this is a possibility this and I've said this right from the beginning that this temple might just be the one that the Jews put together right before the tribulation or you know, when the Antichrist gives them permission to build a temple. And I'm not gonna argue that when they start talking about sin offerings, Jesus is our sin offering. So they should not have to make a sin offering if he's reigning. Well
1: to get this right, it would, it would start during the tribulation, period carry on over
0: the millennium. The temple was going to be worshipped in, in during the millennial kingdom. Study more and more of this, I'm really beginning to agree with people that say this is the Third Temple. It's just more elaborate than I ever thought the Third Temple would be when it gets built. And then probably
1: the Antichrist would cut off that for the last three and a half
0: years. Right. He's going to stand up in the middle of the Tribulation at the three and a half year period and declare, I am God, worship me and whether it's a divine revelation to the Jewish people at that time that that they've been lied to or something in his appearance or something in their heart that says no this is not our God they will rebel. But
1: something happened during those three and a half last years where they can pick it up again
0: when the and We do know that there's a millennial temple. Okay now we know in Revelation on the new heaven and new earth it says clearly there is no temple in the new heaven and new earth. New Jerusalem, but for the millennial kingdom in this temple here, there's sacrifices being made. And again, I have no problem with the burnt offering because that's just a symbol of total dedication. I have no no problem with the thanksgiving offering because that's just God. I've made a vow. I want to give you thanks for fulfilling it.
1: The burnt offering was a reoccurring regular.
0: It was one that people could choose to do on their own. The sin offering was required. The burnt offering and the Thanksgiving offering were voluntary offerings.
1: But in any case, the, the meat wound up with the priest.
0: Some of it, depending on which one it was. You got to go through you got to go through the Vegas one through four to, to see which pieces they got, what, what they got of each one.
1: But in
0: the burnt offering there everything was burnt up. The burnt offering, everything except for the the hide was was burnt. Sin offering was was, bits and pieces of the offering were burnt. The rest of it was carried outside the camp and burnt because it was unclean, because it was a sin offering. That's why Paul, Paul said in the in one of his epistles and in the writer of Hebrews that he had to be buried outside the camp because the sin offering had to be taken outside the camp outside the city to be discarded this is why it's it very very complex especially for us as Gentiles if we have not spent a lot of time because most of us think okay there's one offering you put everything up on the fire and burn it well there's four distinct offerings that Leviticus talks about at least four and each one has its purpose, and one some are voluntary, some are required, and we need to keep those straight. And for us as Gentiles, we just think, well, they just went to the temple and, and burnt 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 meat all the time, but that's not exactly what was happening. What you need to remember,
1: is uh, a lot of these uh, meat cuts were uh, coals.
0: And I think the coal was like the filet mignon. Well, the coal is all is actually the fat and everything around the liver, and the liver there was a part nobody was going to eat anyway, especially as a Jew. It was it was basically the liver and the innards and those things that nobody would eat anyway so and God saying but when for the Hebrew that's this, this belly was the center of emotion so they were basically saying God wants that center of emotion area the
1: Greeks,
0: didn't they? Uh, well they had it a long time before the Greeks did oh, okay. the Greeks followed in suit we even in our language have that same kind of thought problem I have a gut feeling you know, my just in the deep pit of who I am, I have this feeling, and we still have that. We talk about our heart being given to somebody. We just a, a little bit higher than the than the belly for most places, but we even still have it in our language. I have a gut feeling, or my gut tells me this. You know, my deep inner feelings come from deeper down than. Yeah, that's a real thing. So there, there is some real. Attributes to it. I don't know all of what all of what those attributes are But before the priest could make their offering they have to go make a sin offering and that sin offering was for their for their sin and when they would kill that animal for the sin offering they then they would take that internal parts and the fat around them and and Couple other pieces which I don't remember off the top They'd burn those and then the sin offering would be the blood would be sprinkled all over things (laughs) And as just kid told us in verse 20, they sprinkled it on the altar, they sprinkled it on the, the horns, they, they sprinkled it on all kinds of things to, because it was covering, the blood was to cover the sin.
1: But that sin offering, that was done time the priest went in for duty, so to speak.
0: When they would do duties, they would do it uh, before the uh, sacrifice for the atonement, day of atonement, they would offer the sacrifice for themselves, they would offer sacrifice for the people, The Day of Atonement was a slightly bigger one because it was for the nation. But the sin offering, anybody could come in and make that offering for themselves. But the priests had to make sure that they were doing it as well. And they did a lot of them for themselves. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, everybody went to that particular one because it was a sin offering for the nation. For the priests, they would take it from their own flocks because they had their own flocks. And they would bring it in for them. And then if you were going in to get offer you know, your sin offering, you'd bring it from your flock and make that offering. Priests had their own flocks that they maintained, uh, sheep, goats, and animals. And a lot of them were held kept right around Jerusalem because they had to make so many offerings. All of this stuff is in the book of Leviticus, mostly, <laughs> the book that nobody reads. Because uh, Leviticus is a hard book for us, especially as Gentiles, to trudge through. And it doesn't mean a whole lot to us. And probably to, the, to most Jews in this day and age, it's a hard book to trudge through because it's not something they relevant to their day-to-day life. Verse 20, the, the blood shall be put on the four horns. It shall be put on the corners of the settle. It shall be put on the border around about. And you shall cleanse it and purge it. And then the borders, and then the altar itself. And that, he says, shall, shall cleanse and purge it. and. This is a picture of them starting the process of this temple. And when the tabernacle was built, blood offerings were made all over the place. And if you re- we read through Exodus and we see them offering all the blood and sprinkling the blood on, on everything, the mercy seat, the, all the stuff in the holy place and the altars and, and on the, on the priests and on the high priest and all the stuff he's wearing. I think this is what we're seeing here is we're getting ready to start this temple and we're now getting we're making the sin offerings, we're purging everything, we're cleansing everything. And so we see this the altar being cleansed. And it doesn't talk about the rest of it, but it would mean everything else going into the holy place and, and being create you know, being put in the place needs to be cleansed. And it's this one's dealing with just the parts that the people see, the out the outer part. And I think in one sense this is probably very true because Jesus is the one who's completed the offering. So as far as humans are concerned, we don't need the holy place and the holy of holies cleaned up because Jesus's blood has done that. The outside that's touched by man, even for us in our day, we're to repent from our sins. We're to ask for forgiveness. And God says, if we ask for forgiveness, we'll be forgiven. And that's our day-to-day walk with him. Not our, not our walk with him for heaven, but our day-to-day walk. We need to confess our sins and keep the accounts short for our day-to-day walk. And without with and that takes our guilt and guilty conscience and everything because he forgives us. And when we sin, we're to confess to him and he says, "Okay, I forgive you." And it's not our forgiveness for heaven. That was done by Jesus Christ and by being put in Christ. When we sin, we get out of fellowship with God and it makes it very hard to come to God. If we have sin in our hearts and in our minds, it's hard to come before God. And come before his presence because our sin is before our eyes. And that's what confession is about. It restores our relationship with him on this world. And it's part of our sanctification to get that rebuild of our our relationship back with him. And so I see this outside altar being the same thing. This is this is your day to day walk with God type stuff, not your salvation issue because Jesus took care of salvation. It's just a very outward appearance to this and the sin offering that we're talking about is in Leviticus 4 if you want to read more about it, it talks about it in Leviticus 4 verse 21 and you should take the bullock also for the sin offering and he shall burn it in the appointed place in the house without the sanctuary so the sin offering as we said earlier the blood was put on certain parts of it were taken out and burnt on the altar and then a priest would take it outside the city and basically, build a big bonfire type thing outside the city and burn that carcass. It's really a big deal on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, and that was the day they would take two animals. The high priest would put his hands on the on the two uh, goats, announce the sins of the people on on those. They would draw a lot. One of the goats would be taken outside the camp to be released, and that was a picture of the of the sins being carried away from the, from the, from the uh, people. The other one would be the offering. And again, they would offer certain parts of it, then they would take that offering and burn it outside the camp. All the bones and, and skin and everything was burnt outside the camp because it was basically defiled. It was not, the, only the parts that God wanted were what they, what they would keep and nobody else was going to eat the sin offering. Uh, so we see that in this case. And on the second day, you shall offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering, and they shall cleanse the altar as they did cleanse it with the bullock. When you have made it into the cleansing of it, offer your own bullock without blemish and a ram with, without blemish, and you shall offer them before the Lord, and the priest shall cast salt on them, and they shall offer them up as a burnt offering unto the Lord. So on the second day, they were to do, to do uh, this offering with a goat. Again, they're looking at one without, and they were to cleanse the altar again, just the same way, sprinkling blood. And you know, I can't even imagine what this was like. I am so happy that Jesus died for us and we don't have to do sacrifices anymore. Just the blood being everywhere, the smell of the blood everywhere, knowing that the cost, and one thing about it, it was very vi- visual on the cost of sin being forgiven. And I think back when Adam and Eve sinned and God provided them skins of an animal it was very visible to them that this sin was serious it cost the life of two one or two animals to to clothe them and they would have seen death actual death for the first time for God to provide them with the offering that they needed to cover their sin and then to cover their bodies and a very dramatic thing to to, to see that and you you figure they had been in charge of the animals. This had to have been really heartbreaking to them. It would be almost like a, a killing a pet. They they had probably drawn close to these animals. The, you know they were the rulers of them. They were the these these animals. And but it cost a big deal. And Adam and Eve witnessed this process of God creating skins for them. And that and they're not creating but getting them skins, which would have involved death, which then taught them that when you sin, the sacrifice had to be made. And that's been taught ever since because God showed them the high price of sin and to be covered for your, by your sins. And then finally we get to Jesus being the ultimate cost, which we're, we're supposed to remember when we do communion, the blood and the body of Jesus Christ and how harsh it is which is why I keep bringing up when I do communion, how much pain Jesus went through so that we could be saved, so we can remember. We're not seeing the picture that the Jews saw of the actual animal dying, but we need to look back to the pain that Jesus went through for us. And it's so critical that we remember. Too many people think that we get saved and it was some cheap cheap thing and all we gotta do is say a prayer, but it costs God a whole lot cost him his son it cost Jesus all that pain it cost the father seeing his son go through pain and having to separate himself from his son for a period of time because he became sin we've got to really understand how high a price it was to buy back man and God did it willingly and that is something that just blows my mind is that he did it willingly and he planned on doing it because he knew man was going to fall even before he created him and that just, to me, is something that is just mind-blowing. How much does he love us and care for us? And sometimes I wonder why. <laughs> you know. Why would you do such a thing? So they get these rams, and uh, they offer them, and he says, and then you shall offer them, and that will be the end of the cleansing, and you shall offer a young bull, bullock without rams, without, without... Verse 24, and you shall offer them before the Lord, and the priest shall cast salt on them, and they shall offer them up as burnt offerings unto the Lord. So these two are going in, their blood's being used, but these are burnt offerings, total dedication. So the priests are saying, we are dedicating ourselves completely to you. So in this offering, it is an offering of dedication, basically. And when you see the words burnt offering, it's usually, not always, <laughs> but usually referring back to Leviticus 1.0 offering of burnt sacrifice which was dedication offering I dedicate myself to you and normally it's a free will offering except in this case where the priests are demanded you are mine you're going to you are for them you are going to devote yourself to me you don't have that choice Verse 25 seven days shall you prepare every day a goat for the sin offering and they shall prepare a young bullock and a ram out of the flock without blemish Seven days they shall purge the altar and purify it, and they shall consecrate themselves. And when these days are expired, it shall be that upon the eighth day, and so forward, the priest shall make your burnt offerings upon the altar, and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, says the Lord. So we see here, the priests are going through seven days of purification and consecration. And seven is God's number, perfect, perfection. So they're going through basically perfection to make these offerings and it says when that's done then they can serve the people with your with your burnt offerings and your peace offerings that God will accept and these are the different types of offerings again that we, if we go back to Leviticus 1 to 4 5 6 wherever it is on there it tells us all about these different offerings and we did a long series on them we did one offering per per week for for about a month and a half these are serious things for the Jews Many of the Orthodox Jews to this day are really concerned that there's no sacrifice that they can make, knowing that blood has to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. Now the reformed Jews and the just the general Jews and rabbis have de- have determined, without any reason for for it in the Bible, that because there's no altar, if you uh, no altar to sacrifice on, that if you do more good than bad, you're going to be okay with God, and so they're just buying into the world's way of doing things. The Satan's way of doing things—just do more good and bad, you'll be okay. But they also know that these sacrifices need to be made, which is why many people in Israel, especially the Orthodox and the Ultra-Orthodox, to have a temple built so that they can make their offerings and have blood shed, so that they can have their sins forgiven. Because they—they they struggle with this. They struggle with this idea. They read the scriptures, say blood needs to be shed, and yet. Everybody's telling them, no, you can you can get by just by being good. And they go, no, we know we can't be good. And this
1: probably all came about after the temple was destroyed by Romans?
0: Well, both times. Uh, well, yeah, after the Romans destroyed it. I don't know how long after, but they, they struggled with how do we get forgiveness. But it probably goes back all the way to Nebuchadnezzar's time when he destroyed it, and they had a 70-year period without a temple. Okay, so they've had... Twice now where they've had no temple to sacrifice in so it probably goes back all the way and I don't know for sure I know it was true after 80 70 and probably goes back to Nebuchadnezzar's Destruction of the temple. What do we do? What do we do to now that, uh, for for forgiveness of our sins now that we can't offer a sacrifice? And that would have been just about the right time because Nebuchadnezzar was was before he before Daniel got him converted uh, was very much into idol worship and everything and it would have fallen into the way of the worlds. Well, everybody everybody else is and do more good than bad. Okay, we'll do more good than bad. And I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it goes all the way back to that period of time. No sacrifice, no no forgiveness. We definitely know sometime after AD 70 that it happened. Uh, but for a generation or two in Nebuchadnezzar's day, you've got no temple. So it's probably the same question. How do we How do we get forgiveness from sin? How does God accept us without us being able to offer sacrifice at the temple? Oh, it made sense. This is what everybody else does. This is what the world does. We're gonna we'll be like the rest of the world. It fits the flesh. The flesh wants to do things and get credit for pleasing God. And that's why goes on, I mean the whole idea goes all the way back to Nimrod and the Tower of Babel and the whole setting up of multiple gods and and false religion. All of that goes back to Nimrod. And in Nimrod's day at the Tower of Babel, we had the great battles between Nimrod and Eber. Eber followed the one God and is the father of all the Hebrew nations. And Nimrod was the believer in multiple gods and had a whole pantheon of 36 gods. And brought in all of the works orientation and stuff that we have to this day. Every false religion has its roots in Nimrod's false religions. And in the Revelation, it calls it Mystery Babylon. And and the references to Babylon oftentimes, especially amongst the prophets, is not just the city of Babylon, but that whole religious system of Babylon that uh, that Nimrod instituted. So when you're reading it, you need to kind of determine, am I reading about the city, or are we reading about the symbol of all false religion? And many times, it's the symbol of false religion that that they're referring to. And uh, all going back, all the way back to Nimrod. And the roots of all the false religions are are in his teachings. And quite an interesting thing, because he taught the whole thing more good than bad, offer sacrifices to all these different gods had a whole pantheon of gods in, in opposition to, to the one true God. Eber had probably had some influence on Abraham, who was a great grandson, I think, of Eber. I'd have to double check that one. But Eber was still alive when, when uh, Abraham was alive. Nimrod was still alive when Joseph was born. Not that he would have ever known Joseph, but he was still alive during that period of time. He's the last of, he was the last of the long-living patriarchs from, from Genesis so he's the one that started many nations and we've talked about this it wasn't just the Jewish people who believed in one God there's whole branches that come from Eber that believe in one God now they weren't the chosen people or anything they didn't get the scriptures but they followed one God and we see them all over the place do they have a perfect understanding you know from as we do from scripture no but they worship the one God and they worshiped God and they looked forward most likely to the Messiah because the Messiah goes back before the Jewish people all the way back to Genesis 3:15 when the first prophecy of the Messiah is going brought out. So these other groups being trained by Eber would have been waiting for a Messiah to come.
1: Maybe that's where Abraham got this idea of by faith walked.
0: I'm sure he got it from Eber, and Eber, of course, got it you know generations to Noah. But
1: it just proves that one thing that. If, even though you don't have the word or anything else, uh, people will always know, um, given the proposition, that there is one God, uh, either from the stars, or the earth, or the
0: way things are laid out. People will always know there is one God. It's been taught. There's always been a remnant that has been taught it. People will go, Abraham was an idol worshiper, and all of that, and we don't know that. Just because he was from the Ur of Chaldees does not mean that he was a worshiper of the all idols uh now we know that other people in his family were worshippers of idols but it appears that abraham followed in the footsteps of eber and eber was alive and he would have known him in that area he would have been aware of him been aware of his teachings maybe even had spent time under him we don't we don't know and that's the power of it i've done a lot of research in this topic and a lot of the research historical ancient documents talk about Abraham knowing Eber and, and being his his follower and disciple and all of that. This is why I say I, I hear sometimes pastors and everything saying you know Abraham was a idol worshiper and got called away from Ur of Chaldees by God. I don't I don't buy into it. It's one of the many areas that I don't dis, don't agree with a lot of pastors about uh, because. Most of them also don't understand Eber and the, and and had never looked into the history. But Eber and Nimrod were at odds against each other. Well, I, I've been interested. I love history, so I got interested into more about what Mystery Babylon's all about. And the more you study Mystery Babylon, the more you find Eber as the as the counterpiece against it, or, or Nimrod against him, whichever way you want to yeah. look at it. Uh, we have the righteous the righteous line of God being formed by Eber or continued by Eber, and you got Nimrod continuing the Cain and you know, Cain's rebellion and everything with it. So it's a pretty, pretty interesting thing, the, the battle between good and evil, false religion against, against the real, real religion, and everything has its roots in Mystery Babylon. And, I, and, I, and I'm going to say this, because, especially because so many people are listening to this on the Internet, possibly. If you go in to study in Nimrod and the Mystery Babylon, as i always say spend an equal amount of time in the word of god studying it with just as much depth as you studied the other one to balance out truth against the lies that have been then stuck into you
1: but,
0: but as i say so many times if you're going to study anything about the cults anything about something that's not biblical if you spend 2 hours in in something like that spend at least 2 hours in the bible to to refresh your mind back to God's word, you know, so that it doesn't get stuck stuck there. And I think it's very, very important that we don't get stuck in it because people have spent so much time sometimes studying the cults and they start out with good intentions as a Christian and then they get sucked out of Christianity, you get judgmental or whatever else because they're spending so much time in other things other than the, the word of God. And it's critical. And that's good. I like people who are Bereans because I don't, I don't want people to agree with me just because I'm pastor. I want them to go check it out. If they agree with me, great. If they don't agree, with me, as long as they know why they believe what they believe, that's all I care about. Uh, I know why I believe what I believe, and I'm very strong on it, and I can teach and I can defend what I believe. If somebody wants to believe it, that's good. If they don't want to believe it, you know, that's good.
1: Preface these things with, you know, that's my and nail that down, okay. so that people understand that a lot of preachers don't nail it down; they send it out as gospel.
0: And there's sometimes and it's very strong and clear, and I'm not going to go with that. But especially when I deviate from what the majority of the Christian teachers teach, I will tell you this is my opinion. This is, and I'll also tell you what they teach. I won't go deep into what they teach because I disagreed with it. But I'll tell you what I believe, why I believe it, because I think that's important. Now, if you want to, and I've said it often, if you want to agree with the majority of the people, you're in good company.
1: Make it clear that it's not necessary for your salvation what it is necessary.
0: Oh, when it's necessary for your salvation, I take a hard stance. You know, I'm not going to go, this is my opinion, or this, you know, other people teach this, When it's, you know, when it's anything to do about the deity of Jesus and the fact that he died for sin and that he lived a perfect life and that he rose again from the dead, those things are absolute, no opinion in it. And other than that, there's a lot of room for opinion. A lot of room for opinion. And I don't want to get stuck on, locked into something and say, this is the only way you can, can deal with this. And everybody grows at a different rate. And that's also important for us to understand. Uh, listening to the pa- a pastor on the radio talking about when Paul in Corinthians is telling them about whether you can eat meat or not eat meat, offered you know, to an idols. And the most important thing is, what does it do to a brother? Yeah. You know, and that needs to be our ultimate decision on anything where we have liberty to do things. Yeah. Because as Christians, we have liberty to do a lot of things. OK, we, you know, we're not bound under the laws. We can do a lot of things. But do I want to do something that's going to harm another brother in Christ or sister in Christ? You know, if I was to go down to Laughlin or Vegas and start gambling, in one sense, I have no problem with it because there's no rule that says don't gamble. But what would happen if somebody saw a pastor down there gambling? Well, That might cause somebody to go into some pretty deep sin because they have some real strong opinions about it same thing with drinking i'm not going to take a drink not that i am even wanting to take a drink but i wouldn't take it if for no other reason i don't want to lead somebody else into that kind of lifestyle i won't do i won't be looking at drugs all these other things because i don't want a brother or sister to be drugged down in saying well pastor can do it. i can do it there's plenty of things that i can do that might cause a problem still (laughs) But I'm not going to do strong, overt ones that say, oh, man, I saw a pastor do it. Maybe, maybe it is OK as they're being convicted not to do it. And very critical. Just because we have liberty or freedom to do something does not mean we should just go out and do everything that we have liberty to do, because it might cause another brother or sister to enter into sin. Jesus, one of the accusations about Jesus was that he uh, went with wine-bibbers and gluttons and sinners. Now, and by implication, they were saying, "Well, if you're hanging with them, you're doing that." And Jesus says, "No, I'm ministering to them." And there is a fine line between going out and ministering to the to the lost world, and participating in the <laughs> with the lost world. And if you're going out and you're drinking and partying just like they are, you're not being a witness for Him. And it's very critical for us to be able to say, "Is what I'm doing edifying people and lifting them up, or?" Am I just doing it because I like doing it? You know, whether that's sin or not. And uh, very critical for us, very critical. What do I have permission to do? Just about anything. But what should I be doing? A lot less than I might have permission to be doing. And the most important thing when we're trying to talk to people is too many Christians try to get people to quit sinning, quit some sin before they come to Christ. And that's not what Christ ever did he brought them the gospel, m- got them committed to him, then he worked the sin out of them. And that's very critical because too many Christians have this idea, well, when you're good enough, I'll give you the gospel. And we cannot fall into that trap. We have got to be able to present to people, here is the gospel, you are a sinner. I'm not going to you know, sugarcoat that, you are a sinner. But God wants you where you're at amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me I once was blind but now I see you know it's we don't know our sin until after we get to know Christ and the light shines in and the Holy Spirit is working on us and too many times and I've seen it over and over and over with Christians they are like well when you stop going to the bar and getting drunk all the time I'll give you the gospel no let's give them the gospel then God can convict them from the inside that being drunk is not what he wants and that they should be in church, fellowshipping with people. You know, let me get this person out of their homosexuality, and then I'll give them the gospel. No, let's give them the gospel and get them saved, and then God can work from the inside to tell them what they're doing is wrong, whether it's adultery, fornication, lying, stealing, whatever it might be. Our job is simple: give them the gospel. Then God can start teaching them from the inside out that what they're doing is wrong. I
1: totally convinced that most of these people know. That what is wrong, but they overcome it either by being saturated all the time by something or hanging around with others like it. That's why uh, I think the homosexual community wants all these laws passed and everything in the states and, and government so that it's OK for them. They want to feel that it's OK. They want everyone agree that what they're doing is OK. All
0: right, because if you get enough people agreeing, then you feel better, then you feel better that even though you know that what you're doing is wrong, And that's what happened with uh, adultery. People living together know that it's not right, but there's enough people that say it's okay, there's enough churches that say it's okay, there's enough people that are agreeing with them that it's okay, that they're able to sear their conscience a whole lot easier than they could in the past. And you're right, that is exactly what they're doing. If enough people say it's okay, if the government says it's okay, I can maybe sear my conscience. I can sear my conscience and it's okay. But deep down they know it's not okay. I don't have to convince somebody that a particular sin that they don't have a problem with is a sin because I know that they've got other things that they know is wrong. You know, do, do I want to deal with the homosexual or the adulterer or the fornicator with, uh, with their sin and try to convince them it's sin? No, I'm going to talk about them about lying you know, all, and all the stuff that they're doing there. I'm going to find a sin that they're going to realize that they're a sinner, that they haven't been able to get a scarred tissue over and that's all we need to do as Christians is convince them that they are a sinner. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So all we got to do is convince them that they're a sinner. And it doesn't matter that they don't think what they're doing is a sin. We're, we're just living together and we're we're monogamous. We're not planning to ever, ever break up. Well, God calls what you're doing uh, a, a fornication. You're not married, it's fornication. But I'm not going to worry about that when they're doing it because I want them to understand... God, there's something that you're sinning in and that you know is a sin. When you lie, you know you're sinning. When you steal, you know you're sinning. Okay, let's just deal with those. I'm not even going to worry about the fornication. I'm just going to get you. You are a sinner. Here's the wages of sin. Sin, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus died for your sin. Get them saved and then let Jesus work from the inside to teach them that some of these other sins are, need to be get, taken out of their life. And that's why it's critical for us as Christians. Don't focus on something they don't think is, a, is an issue. Because there are plenty of things that, that, that are an issue with them that we can focus on. And you know, we can focus on the fact that they're, they're drunk. He you know, knows that getting drunk is not, is not right. You know, they don't, and God doesn't say you can't drink. It's just you can't drink if, you're, you know, if it's going to lead you to be getting drunk or if it's going to make somebody else fall for, for, for older Christians. And I have no desire to it. I don't want to see anybody be taken away from their walk because they see me doing something and they go, well, he's been walking with God for 40-some years. He, I can, he can do it, I can do it. And that's not a good thing. And that's one of the reasons that the longer we walk with God and the more we've matured with God, technically the less we can do, not because I don't have the liberty to do it, but I don't want to see other people fall because of what I have liberty to do. And uh, very important on that. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, help us to be able to share with you with others. Lord, let us see many people get saved and come to you. And we just thank you in all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen.